<laughs> Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Oh, I'm glad we're all here. So open your Bibles, open your iPads, iPhones, or for some of you, open your eyelids to Luke chapter 15. Now, Luke chapter 14 is interesting because it ends with this. It says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And uh, may that just be a part of our prayer this morning before we jump in. Let's pray. Father, my hope is that you would just let this text read us today. I know I pray that all the time, but I don't want us to read the Bible. I want it to read us. And I pray that we might let this text penetrate and dig deep into the real deep parts of our hearts and soul so we would know what's in there for your glory and our joy. So, Father, I thank you for these men and women that are here today. I thank you for the chance to open up the Word and be ready to be read by it and to have it press in on us. I thank you for the, uh, the opportunity of just being able to gather together, and I pray that in your mercy you would come after our hearts this morning and that you would expose the deeper things and not just the surface-level things. And in your beautiful name, I pray this. Amen. So, how many people did their homework? Huh, awesome. Great. Listen, some of you, you're going to do your homework now. It's just like back to school all over again. As I'm going to read this passage of Scripture all over again here in Luke uh, 15, I'm going to ask you to listen and to reflect on the painting that's going to be on the screen in front of you. So uh, the painting's called The Return of the Prodigal Son, and it's done by Rembrandt, and he did it back in 1660s. Now, take a look and take a listen. Study the picture. And turn off your phone. <laughs> you know, it better be God. That's all I can say, you know. <laughs> the tax collectors and sinners are all gathering around to hear Jesus. The tax collector and the sinner would have been taught from the very beginning that they were outcasts. They were taught that God had judged them. There was no forgiveness for tax collectors and sinners. They... They were going to have a meeting with God one day, and it's not going to be pleasant. They're not allowed in the synagogue. They're not allowed to make sacrifices. They're not allowed to hear the Torah read. They're absolutely cut out from the religious life of Israel. And yet, they gather near to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So on one hand, you have the tax collectors and the sinners, and on the other hand, you've got the Pharisees and the scribes, or the teachers. Now, it's interesting, because these guys, these Pharisees, these scribes, these teachers, these are the guys who have the fish bumper stickers on the back of their donkeys and chariots. They only listen to Hebrew music. They only drink Welch's grape juice. They're upright and uptight. And they believe that their moral uprightness has given them favor with God. 
And then Jesus told this parable. He said, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. He doesn't, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after that lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it upon his shoulders and he goes home and he calls his friends and neighbors together. He says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you, Jesus said, that in the same way there will be many more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner who repents over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He goes on, he says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! <laughs> I found my lost coin! In the same way, I, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now personally, it's my belief when we take a look at these two first parables that they are a pair. They are emphasizing the same truth. In both parables, sinfulness is not stressed, if you may notice that very carefully. The thing that is stressed is that which is lost. In both parables, the owner takes the initiative. Seeking that which is lost. In both cases, the owner seeks diligently, seeks persistently. The owner rejoices in both cases, invites and expects neighbors to do likewise and to celebrate in both cases. The, the rejoicing of the one who has found the lost item is, is likened to the rejoicing of heaven to the salvation of one sinner. In both cases, it's not men or women who are lost. It is a thing. And it's a human that is seeking to find that which is lost. Again, in both cases, I believe the parable is not, those two parables is not primary, primarily intended as a picture of God seeking after lost men, but rather maybe it's a picture of man seeking after lost things. Men and women seeking after stuff. And so Jesus goes on and he continues telling his story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your hired servants. And he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, 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 bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, man, and let's barbecue. Let's have a feast. Let's have a celebration. For this son of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and now is found. And so they began to party. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he, he heard music and dancing. And he called out to the servants and asked them, Hey, what's going on? And the servant replied, Your brother has come back. Your father killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. That's why we're having a party. The older brother became angry. And he refused to go in. When he came near the house, he heard the music, he heard the dancing. He was just angry. He stayed away, and so his father went out to him and pleaded with him. But he answered his dad. He said, look, I've been slaving all these years for you, and I never disobeyed your orders, and yet you never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, he comes home, what do you do? You kill the fatted calf for him. The father replies, he says, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Look at the picture. What did you see in that picture? You can call out in church, it's okay. What did you see? A receiving of a son. What else did you see? Sorry? The hands are different. Whose hands are different? The father's hands on the son. If you look closely, one's masculine and one's feminine. What else did you see? One shoe off. off. Why did that stick out to you? Because the other one's on, okay, all right. (laughs) Dirty feet, all right. What else do you see? Sorry? 
There's a couple of blurred out faces in the background, is there not? Who's who in the picture? How many people are in the picture? Well, technically there's six. Who are you in the picture? Think about that. It's interesting, the father and the one son is uh, very clear. Uh, the two men on the right, I've heard other people say, well, the, the one in the red robe is, is the prideful son, the elder brother. And I kind of struggle with that interpretation when I look at this because I'm wondering whether or not, because the context is talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, um, I'm wondering whether or not the, the two gentlemen on the right are a scribe and the Pharisee. I wonder whether or not the elder brother, the elder son, is that little head poking in, in the center of the picture. I also wonder whether or not mom is in the background in the far top left corner. Beautiful painting. We had the opportunity to be in St. Petersburg and actually watch, walk the grounds of the Hermitage, but unfortunately the, the palace was closed and we couldn't get to, to see this painting. I would have loved to see it in real life. Now, listen. Who are you in the story? That's what I want you to think about this morning as we're walking through this, because this parable is, has always been called the parable of the prodigal son, but Jesus doesn't call it that. As a matter of fact, he begins the story and he says, a man had two sons. So it's interesting because the story, it, it, it's really a story of comparison and contrast of the, the two, two brothers. The difference between the two brothers, what is it? You know, the, the younger one, he, he left home, while the older one, he stayed, right? The younger son was, we could say he was wasteful. The, the older son was more of a productive worker. The younger son spent his inheritance prematurely. The older one obviously did not. The, the younger one did not feel worthy of his father's blessings, but the older one did. The younger one realized his sins, but the older one feels more righteous. The younger one repented, the older one resented. But the sins of these two sons are very different in their outward manifestations, but inwardly, let me propose to you that they all have the same root. And to a great degree, uh, our understanding of this text is filtered through our own experience. Let me say this, parents, maybe you are presently struggling with a rebellious children, and, and uh, uh, you're going to tend to identify with the father of the prodigal, and you're going to look at this text for guidance, and you're going to look at this text for, for comfort uh, um, and for yourselves in, in the midst of your pain. I see that. I get that. You know, maybe those of us who have fallen into sin will, will focus on the prodigal son himself and on the loving and the forgiving heart of the father, and we, we see it from that look. But few of us will choose to identify with the older brother, and yet I will say to you that the older brother in this parable is the central figure. 
And if we truly come to understand why Jesus told this parable and what he meant, we would come to see that the listeners were actually thunderstruck. They were absolutely offended and furious. Yes, the scribes and the Pharisees, that's who Jesus is talking to. And his purpose in telling this parable wasn't to warm their hearts, no, but to explode the normal human categories of how you approach God. So you can't read the scriptures and not notice that Jesus is actively pursuing our hearts. And to be honest, most of us, we really don't want that from Jesus. We would rather work for him. So this morning, Christians, we would rather say, you know, God, I'll open up my home for a life group, you know, or God, I won't watch this type of movie, I won't do this, or I won't do that, or I won't go to this, or I won't go to that. But Jesus, just, you know, I just leave my heart alone. And so what we want to do is we create in our minds that we want to work for God. But we don't really want him pressing on our hearts. We don't want him engaging us at some deep, real, personal level. And we simply, we really, we just want to be good people. And we just want to do good things, and we just want Jesus to leave us alone. You know, how many times have we heard people say, oh, you know, I'm a good person. I'm just, I'm a good person. I don't need religion. I don't need, I'm a good person. Yeah, you are. Help me complete these phrases. If it sounds too good to be true, it is, yeah, yeah. We make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it, yeah. There's no such thing as a free lunch, yeah, yeah. There's no gain without, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of Greg, yeah. God helps those who, yeah, all this filters within the church, doesn't it? And for some people, they actually think that that's found in Scripture. I don't know what Bible you're reading. But everything about the North American way of life actually teaches us the simple truth. That in life, you get what you earn. That's our culture, people. You get what you work for. You get what you pay for, right? Whether it's Walmart, Target, or the Bay, or Sears. Sorry, I didn't go there. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. The problem is many people think the same way that you relate to your paycheck, the same way that you relate to your possessions, is the way that you relate to God. But God doesn't relate to us on the basis of our goodness. He relates to us on the basis of his grace. I'm taking you through a whole new series. It's called retooling. It's getting back to the basics. Today I'm challenging each and every one of you that are here. Next week we're going to be looking and seeing what, what Sunday morning and what I'm talking about Sunday morning and golf have in common. Put that one together. We're going to be rolling out the vision in a couple of weeks of what we're going, what we're doing, how we're trying to get there, and what part you play in all of this. But before we can even do that, I honestly feel we need to take a step back and become very introspective in a painting done in 1600 and a parable told 2,000 years ago and how it affects us today.
See, apart from grace, we can't know God. Apart from grace, we can't understand God. Apart from grace, you, we just can't even relate to God. And I, I, <clears throat> I don't know a more important word to the church than the word grace because you see, without grace, we, we would have to close the doors of the church because we wouldn't have a ministry. Without grace, I would be without a job, so to speak, because I would not have a message. And yet there's many definitions of grace out there, and you know we can do all different types of acrostics, but I found two that I just want to share with you today. One says, grace is anything that I need but don't deserve that I could never repay, but God gives to me anyway. And the other one is, grace is the face that God puts on when he looks at my failures, my faults, and my flaws. I love that one. The face that God puts on when he looks at my faults, my failures, and my flaws. Do you notice in those definitions that grace is not about goodness? It's not about our goodness. And when we study this parable, we see that God attacks right action that doesn't have a right heart to it. Track with me here. So right action without the right heart is not pleasing to God. And so whenever we teach and and preach that right action gets you right standing before God, you've strayed from what is known as biblical Christianity. Because Jesus is after the heart and the right action without a transformed heart. Listen, we can have the right action, but without the heart inside of us being transformed, we are going to lack joy and we're going to lack worship. We were created. When you look at the scriptures, we see that we are created for ever-increasing joy. How's your joy meter going? Does it suck? Well, then, then you need a heart check here. Right action without a transformed heart still has you outside what God has created you to be. Think about that. See, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're muttering, they're complaining they're about Jesus. But the tax collectors and the sinners, it's interesting, when we're reading the scriptures, they're attracted to Jesus. He's a, he's a sinner magnet. And, and uh, tax collectors and, and sinners are like the younger brother here in the parable. that They have engaged in immoral, irreligious, wild living. And you're tracking with me on this, right? They have left the traditional morality of their families. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, however, are like the elder brother in the parable. They have stayed, interesting, within the traditional uh, morality of their upbringing. That's where they are. They are deeply devoted to studying. They are deeply devoted to obeying the word of God. They pray. They worship constantly, consistently. They're doing all the right stuff on the outside. And yet it's the religious leaders who are shocked by Jesus' ministry. You know, because Jesus attracted the very people who most hated and most despised religions. He attracted the outcasts. Moral people are put off by Jesus. He doesn't wash properly. My kids never wash properly. What else is They still don't. And two of them are married. None of them are here. (laughs) 
Oh, you didn't do the right stuff. You're drinking Welch's grape juice. Everybody should be drinking Welch's grape juice. You don't drink Irish Guinness. And they're shocked by Jesus' ministry because he's eating with them. And, and they're using their hands and they haven't washed and they're drinking. And, and, and the trend in Jesus' ministry is to attract these very people who despise the religion. And, and, and these socially and morally out of the mainstream are so strongly attracted to him. Why? And yet he's continually, Jesus is continually looking at the moral, the religious, the respectable, and the upright. And he says this in, in Matthew. He says, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. You got to be kidding. There is no way. And so the angry reaction of the moral and the religious people is not surprising when Jesus is teaching here. But what's the point? The point is that when the message of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ is clear, moral people tend to dislike it. While the irreligious people are intrigued and attracted. And the way to know that you're communicating and living the same gospel message as Jesus is that the younger brothers, those, those, people, those people, are going to be actually more attracted to you than the elder brothers. I love that. And this is a very searching test because almost, because almost always our churches are not like that. And the kinds of people that were attracted to Jesus are not attracted to us. Say amen or ouch right now. Are you tracking with me? Who are you in the picture? We only, and I'm being very reflective when I'm writing my message, we only attract, and let me read it, conservative, button-down, moral people. The broken The people out of the mainstream very much despise what? The church. They despise us. That can only mean one thing. We may think that we understand the gospel of Jesus, but in all actuality, maybe we don't. If we don't see the same effect that Jesus saw, then honestly, if we do a heart check, then we lack the same message Jesus had, if our churches aren't filled with younger brothers, younger sisters, then I have to ask the question, are we more like the elder brother than we would like to think? The story of the two sons, it demolishes the natural human categories for salvation and on the way that we approach God. The world really, when you break it down, this is a very simple generalization, has two views through which it understands spiritual issues. Just work with me. I just want to make it simple. The first is there's a moralistic view. It says that you know salvation is finding God by obeying his laws, by living up to standards of, of some sort of kind. And, and, and we have to measure up with our goodness. The second is more of a relativistic view. It, it says that salvation is, you know, it's finding our, ourselves, it's, it's following our hearts. And in this view, there, there may be God or there may not be God. That's, that's fine. But if there is, he's going to accept us as simply as long as we are sincere in our seeking and we live by our principles. Are you tracking with me as I'm trying to explain this? Both views then divide the world into two basic groups. And one is seen favorably, and the other one is seen unfavorably by each other. 
So you have the moralistic sees the religious people as in and the immoral people, the relativistic people, as out. But the relativistic people, they're free spirits, right? And the free spirit is what is in and the judgmental people, the religious people, those who live by rules, are the outs. So how does Jesus' story address these views? Well, it's actually found in the ending. Jesus' main target here is the moralistic view, the religious. That's who he's targeting in this parable. And, and here is the shocking heart of the parable. Jesus shows that the father has two sons, and actually both are equally alienated from God. Both of them are. And one has expressed his alienation. Why? He runs away. But the other, uh, the elder brother, is just angry. And he's just as much a stranger to the father as the younger brother. When you read the scripture, when I read the scripture, we, we saw that the father had to go out. The father had to go out, right, to each of them, to urge them to come in. But the remarkable part is, is that one of his sons is a very good person and one is a very wicked person. But in the end, it's, it's the evil son who comes in. He comes into the father's feast and dance. And it's the good son who will not. And Jesus' listeners at the time, the scribes and the Pharisees, remember he's talking to the religious elite. He's talking to that moralistic view. They're listening to him. They knew what that meant. And they are utterly stunned by what Jesus is saying. It was a complete reversal of everything that they have been taught to believe. The lover of prostitutes enters the kingdom of God. The moral man does not. The lover of prostitutes was the younger kid. The moral is the older brother. And what is Jesus saying? It's that younger that's going to enter the kingdom. But notice what's keeping that elder brother out. You know, why does he stay out while the younger brother goes in? It's, it, he tells us, he says, it's because all these years, and I like the way the scripture puts it, or Jesus puts it primarily, I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed. And, and it's crazy because it's not his badness that's keeping him out, but it's his goodness. Do you see that? How many of us have never disobeyed our parents? Ever. Ever, ever, ever. This guy. And he slaved. How many of our kids slave for us? Never. <laughs> never, never, never. Oh, you make me clean my room. Yeah, life's really rough. Oh, you make me take out the garbage. Oh, yeah, I know, that's slavery. This guy was a slavery, then. It's not his badness, it's his goodness that keeps him out, and... And it's not his, that his sins are keeping him from sharing in the feast of the Father. It's so much as it's his righteousness. And the elder brother, in the end, he is lost. Not despite his good record, but because of it. And so now we get to the heart of how the gospel differs from a moral view. One writer put it this way, and I love it. He said, the main thing between you and God is not your sins, but your damnable good works. Isn't that crazy? How does that make you feel 
If you're a believer here this morning, how does that make you feel right now? How many times do we stand in our good works? And the gospel is neither simply religion or irreligion. It's neither simply morality or immorality. Most everybody thinks that the moralistic view seems to be the Christian one, and yet the gospel is a radically different approach. And I'm convinced that many of us in North America don't get it. The moralistic view says that the good are in, the bad are out. The the relativistic view says the liberated are in, the oppressive are out. But the gospel says this. It says the humble are in and the proud are out. Do you hear that? The humble are in and the proud are out. And Jesus is telling us here that when the elder types and the younger types clearly hear the new gospel view, as I can put it, It's the younger types that are more generally open and less offended. And that's why the real gospel of faith is one that religious people, by definition, do not like. And we see that in our churches. Both groups think of sin as basically breaking the rules. They just differ in what the rules are. And so what we see is that there's actually two ways then to be lost or alienated from God. You know, one way is trying to be very, very good, trying to do all the right things. The other one is trying to be very, very bad. But in both cases, what we're trying to do is we're trying to be God of our life. We're trying to be our own Lord and Savior. We are trying to take over that control. You know, if I feel that I'm a good person, you know, I may look to Jesus as an example or as a helper or a strength, but I won't need to utterly utterly rely on him for every breath and obey him unconditionally. If I'm a good person, well, you know, then I have rights, don't we? You know, Jesus owes it to me to listen to my prayers, to, you know, I'm a good person, Jesus. I do all the right things. I don't swear. I drive. I don't speed, you know. I don't flip off people when they don't use the merge lane properly. I'm a good person, Jesus. Reward me. And that's clearly the attitude of the elder brother. So why is he so angry at the father? Because he feels he has the right to tell the father what he should do with his robe, his rings, and his calves. And it shows that he is just as resentful, interesting enough, of the father's control of his own goods as he is the younger brother. The younger brother went away. He got out from underneath his father's control, that control of wealth. But the older brother stayed back. He never disobeyed. And that, that was his way to do the exact same thing. And at the heart, they're absolutely the same. Both are trying to escape the authority of the father. Both resented his control. Both rebelled in one way or another. But one did it by breaking all the father's rules. The other one did it by keeping it. Maybe you've heard the joke about the kid who was told to sit down on an airplane and he kept standing, kept standing, kept standing. Finally, the kid sat, sat down and the parent looked at the, the child and said, you know, I'm really glad that you're finally sitting down. She said, yeah, I may be sitting down, but I'm standing up on the inside. It's a typical joke. That's the elder brother. You're doing all the rules, but you're still standing up on the inside. And you can run from God either by breaking his rules or you can run from God by keeping them. How does that sound? Have you heard that preached before? And the difference between a religious person and a true Christian is that the religious person obeys God to get control over God. Now listen to me. To get things from God. 
But the Christian obeys just to get God. A religious person obeys. We do our religious duties, so why? We can have leverage over God to control him, to put him into a position where we think God owes me because I've done all the right things. Therefore, we're actually attempting to be our own saviors. And Christians who know that they are only saved by grace and that they can never control God, they obey him out of a desire to love and please and draw closer to the one who saved them. Where are you in the picture? Maybe we need to ask this question. Why do we obey or why do we sin? Because really, until the message of Jesus really begins to change our hearts, the basic reason for either is exactly the same. The younger brother and the elder brother had the wealth of the father as their main goal. That was their focus. They wanted his things. They didn't want dad. The younger brother's sins allowed him to get his money, and he he was able to do with it what he wanted to do. The older brother's righteousness was motivating the same thing. The inheritance is now mine. I'm going to slave for it. And when the old man kicks off, it's all mine. Their real trust is not in the father, but in the things. And it's in the things that they found their ultimate joy. Their real joy and sense of worth then resided in these things, not in the father, not in dad. And so they're both ways to become your own Savior and your own Lord of your life. How's your things? And and we see then how hard it is for religious people to believe that they're running from God. But they are. And the gospel does not agree that there are spiritually two kinds of people in the world, good and bad. It says that there are just two different kinds of running from God. You can run away by breaking the rules or by keeping them, but you're running away nonetheless. And in the church world, we use that word lost, and it's typical to think of lost people as sort of like wild and out of control and who don't know God. But because, as we've seen, there are two kinds of running from God, there's also two sets of lostness, if I can put it that way. And as you read that parable, we see that there's no attempt to minimize the seriousness or the foolishness of the sins of the younger brother. No, it was still serious. It was still foolish. In the same way, Jesus did receive sinners. He didn't ask them to clean up. He ate with them as they were, but he never minimalized their sin at all throughout Scripture. And the younger brother is what we called lost, right? We see that. The elder brother has just as much lostness. But I'll say this, his lostness is so much more insidious and misunderstood. And I would venture to say that there are many people in churches who are deeply affected by what we could call the elder brother spirit. And these are people who are religious and, and have, they have it all, right? They know it all, and they, but they haven't grasped the gospel well. And, and, and they maintain this moralistic view through which they look at themselves and even read their Bible. Somebody's feeling convicted. <laughs> so here's a self-check this morning. <laughs> Are you ready for this? 
because <laughs> it's so appropriate with the screaming. <laughs> One sign of the elder brother is that you're filled with anger about how life is going. Verse 28, he became angry. Do you feel that in life that God owes you? Do you feel that God owes you a good and comfortable life? Because you're living up to his standards. I'll just say this to you. If that's the self-check and you're going, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Well, that will continue to lead to anger whenever your life takes a bad turn. If you feel you've been living right, doing all the right things, you will be angry at God. And if you feel, here's the irony, if you feel that you haven't been living right, you're going to be angry at yourself. And then there's the self-loathing on top of that. So either way, your life will be filled with anger because you've been trying to control God through your goodness. A second sign of the elder brother's spirit is joyless, a mechanical obedience. Does your faith ever feel like that sometimes? Again, look at the older brother when he says, I've been slaving for you. Look at, look at it this way. Our music people will like this. You may want to listen to Mozart to get, to get an A, right, in appreciation, uh, in music appreciation class, so to speak, so that you can end up getting a, the right grade or your degree. Or you can listen to Mozart, and you can feel and look like a cultured person. Or you could listen to Mozart because it's beautiful for its own sake. And that just by listening to Mozart, it actually just gives you pleasure in the end. I go so far as to say this to you. The elder brother treats obedience and treats obedience to God as instrumental. It's a means to an end. I'll listen to your music as long, long as I get an A. I'm going to listen to your music as long as it makes me look cultured. But I'm not listening to your music. I don't want to, and I don't like it. We don't do good out of a delight in goodness for its own sake or for the pleasure of God. And when we don't do it that way, what we find in religion is that we have no joy and we live in slavery. A third sign of the elder brother's spirit is a coldness to the younger brother's. You know, did you notice that the elder brother doesn't even acknowledge the younger brother? He says to his dad, he goes, this son of yours. Like, who says that? You know, if you believe that you're a sinner saved by grace alone, you, you, you will not feel superior to anybody else. Not to any other culture, not to any other racial groups, not to any other faith, not to any immoral people. But you will treat everyone with respect because you know that your morality has been as sinful and God-escaping as their immorality, if I can put it that way. If you understand the gospel, you will treat others with hope, with kindness, with compassion, and most importantly, you will understand the gospel in that as you're treating people that way, you'll be very courageous with your witness. You'll not be bound by what people think of you. And I think the message of these three parables brought home to the Pharisees and the scribes something that was incredibly clear, painfully clear, that, that, that they had too much compassion on their own lost possessions, 
but they cared very little for lost people. And this is why they couldn't rejoice at the repentance of lost sinners. But there's even more to this. It it isn't that the Pharisees and the scribes found it impossible to rejoice. They actively resisted it. They, Scripture says, they grumbled. And the fourth sign of the elder brother's spirit is a lack of assurance of father's love. You never threw me a party. There's no dancing or or, or festivities in the elder brother's relationship with the father. And as long as we're in a church world and a religious world and we try to earn our salvation by controlling God through our goodness, you're never going to be sure if you've ever made it. There will always be anxiety. There will always be fear and uncertainty in your religious world. And there's even a fifth sign of an elder brother, if you want to think about it. It's a spirit of unforgiving and and being judgmental. And I think that's enough said right there. Are you unforgiving? Better yet, are you judgmental? Do you know what people think? Well, I know what people think. No, you don't. Oh, I know what their heart is. No, you don't. And so also we find out there's two kinds of running. Two kinds of lostness. So the question is, are there two ways home? No, there's, there's only one. Great story. It was a British conference on comparative religions, and so there were experts from all over the world gathered together, and they began to debate, you know, what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating various possibilities. They talked about the incarnation. Other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. They talked about resurrection. Again, other religions had accounts of, you know, a return from death. The debate on for, went for some time, and the story goes on as C.S. Lewis walks into the room. And, of course, he, in his own British way, would ask, you know, what the, what's the rumpus all about? You know, whatever he would say, I have no clue, but go England. Um, you know, he, he, he asked the question because he heard his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution amongst world religions, and And his response was this. Christianity's contributions, well, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. Because the Buddha, Buddhist Eightfold Path, eight things you have to do. The Hindu doctrine of karma. The Jewish covenant of rules and regulations that you have. The Muslim code of the law, the pillars. Each of these offers a way to earn approval. It's only Christianity that dares to make God's love unconditional. And when we look at Scripture, we see that Jesus saw grace everywhere. And yet, he never analyzed it. He never defined it. Instead, he communicated grace through his stories, through his parables, and through the way that he interacted with people and loved people. So what's our takeaway this morning? I think we need to see that the Father has come out to us. You with me? You notice that even the younger brother gets the father's kiss before he can even apologize? And and the kiss is not a response to his repentance, but the action that brings it about. It's the love. With the older brother, what happens, the father had to go out and he had to plead with him. Just as he pleads today with hardened religious people. See, we all need God's grace to come to us first. We need him to seek us or we will never seek him and we need to repent 
And, and, and this is my call to us as a church this morning, and even those who are watching on live stream. We, we need to repent. We, it's not just of our sins, but also of our righteousness. In our culture today, in our culture today, we need a deeper, more comprehensive repentance. And I think we have to recognize that the reasons for our righteous deeds have been the same as the reasons for our sins. And we want to be the savior of our lives because it works really well in North American Christianity. Which brings us to another point that we need to value our salvation. You know, at, at first glance, some people say that the welcoming of the younger son, well, that just seems cheap. You know, there's no punishment, there's no atonement. He's just taken in, you know. Does that mean then that God just accepts us, whatever we do, is, as long as we're sorry? Well, I'll just say this, no. You need to think. You know, how was that younger son put back into the family? Well, it was simple. What happened? He got a robe. He got a ring. He got dressed up. He got showered up. He got a place back into the family. But the only way that the father could actually bring him back into the family was at great expense. Think about the parable. Whose expense did it come out of? The elder brother. The younger brother had already spent his portion of inheritance. Every cent of the father belongs to the elder. When he says, everything I have is yours, you remember that? We, we heard it. Everything I have is yours. The father's speaking the literal truth to the elder son. Every robe, every ring, every fatted calf is the elder brother's. The salvation of the younger son is not free. When you think about it, it will be extremely expensive. The father can't do it except at the expense of who? The other son. So what's the application? I think that there's more elder brother in us than we'd like to think. And I actually think that there's probably less of Jesus in us than we would like to think. Is that a hard message? Yeah, it is. I did say we're retooling. I did say that we're stripping things down. I did say that this summer is going to be a whole lot of fun of where we're going to be walking. But I think it's the challenge for the church. Why are tax collector types not attracted to our churches as they were to Jesus? Is it because we're like the Pharisees? Is it that we are like the elder brother? And I think ultimately we all have to come to this place where we understand what grace is. And for that we need to focus on what I would call the true elder brother, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2 says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And he says to God, I will declare your name to my brothers. And so Christ is the true elder brother, if we can put it that way. By way of contrast with the elder brother in the parable, Jesus is revealed to us. We see him. He came to earth. He truly obeyed his father. He never disobeyed his father's orders. He truly had the right to all of what the father owns. But instead, he came out. He searched for us. He found us in the pigsty. He carried us home on his shoulders. How? Think about it. Celebration, singing with joy. He gave us a robe. He gave us a ring. He gave us his place. He gave us his wealth, all at his expense. And I believe that if we begin to try to understand this truth, it becomes essential and begins to transform us. 
We'll never stop being elder brothers until we rejoice at the work of the true elder brother. Can I put it that way? And there's so many lessons for us to learn in this parable. And it seems to me that, you know, many religious folks are miserable. We're lacking joy because we've lost sight of our own salvation by grace. And we're not involved in leading other people to it. Why? Because we haven't experienced it. And I, fail, I fear that we often fail to experience the joy which God has for us because we're not participating in the grace of God as it's at work in not only just our lives, but in the lives of others. Have we lost sight in our North American culture of others who need God? We fail to share our faith, not because we lack the training, not because we lack methodology, because we lack a deep sense of men's lost condition and the destiny of their face. Fate, sorry. And I wonder at times if we, the church, act as Pharisees and that we fail in our welcome of the outsiders. And rather, we send a clear message that they're not wanted, that we don't care, that we're good with our rules. But if we're truly to understand the grace of God, people, we will welcome everyone and rejoice when they experience grace as we have. Let me close with what I said earlier. Jesus aggressively pursues our heart. He identifies areas in our heart and he begins to ask about it. And this is what Sunday morning is all about. You come and you hear a guy pontificate. That's why I say, open your eyelids. I need to make sure that you're awake with me. Yeah, I know you're on your phone. I couldn't care less. Listen, he is aggressively pursuing our hearts. And he identifies areas in our hearts and he'll say to us, in the quietness and the recesses, as I speak, as you're in your own time, as you're in conversation, he'll, he'll say, hey, what, 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 what's this? And we, our response is, yeah, I don't want to go there. Uh, Jesus, back off. Can you just back? I don't want to deal with that. How about I, I, I do this or I do that or we go here or we go there, but just, just back off a little bit. Just, leave, just leave, leave that alone, Jesus. And of course, what he says is, no, I'm not, I'm not about to. And so what we do is we busy ourselves with our religious stuff, right? With our right moral action. And we attempt to run from God, penetrating our heart. And this is why, and I'll be really honest, this is why we get a weak version of Christianity. Because we have people who are busy doing all the right things, but they don't have a heart transformed. And so we don't have vibrant worship. And we don't have joy. We just have things to do. We go to church. We dress right. We watch the right things. And the list goes on, including Walter's grape juice. And if we do them well, then... We get to look at other people who maybe aren't doing those things well. And we get to feel superior about ourselves. All the while, Jesus is going after the heart. And isn't it funny? Isn't it ironic? 
We could have done that song today. That we could use religion to run from God. So it's really hard to know what's going on inside of us. I mean, at some level, every one of us has a set of confession that we believe and then parts of our lives that that really don't line up with it, right? I think we can all agree on that. I can say like this. At, at, At some point in time, at some level, every one of us here in this room, we're hypocrites. And I don't care if you're religious or irreligious. It doesn't really matter. You know, when irreligious people go, oh, you know, the church is full of hypocrites, our response is absolutely how crazy that God loves them. But the world's full of hypocrites. So now that we got that out of the way, we understand that the heart is deceitful and we can never really figure out what's going on in there. And so the scriptures really lay it out for us to see what's going on in our heart. So my question to you is, what's going on in your heart this morning? And that's the question. Do you have any real affection to God at all? Or are you just trying to barter with him in your relationship? But you know, you come here on the weekends, that's great, you know, somehow you're good with that, you put money in the joy basket, maybe you text to give, you know, just simple promos, you know? Do you have any legitimate affection for God? So let's not be liars and lie to ourselves. I think that there are some things that need to be confessed here and some things that need to be wrestled with here and some things that need to be admitted and confessed too. Honestly, I really do this morning. And maybe there's this area of your life where God is wanting to deal with and you're going, no, 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 I'm not going to confess that. or I'm not getting help for that. I'm just going to hide. I'm going to replace it with and you can do whatever you want. But God's not going to stop talking to you about it. He is after. He aggressively pursues, pursues our hearts. And that's what makes him so difficult, isn't that? If he lives in you, he's not going to help. You're not going to be able to outrun him. I did youth ministry for years. And I saw a consistent pattern that takes place over these years. And I'd find myself in conversation with people who are devastated that their, their now young adult child wants nothing to do with the church, wants nothing to do with God, despite the fact that they grew up in church. Are you tracking with me? You know what I'm talking about, right? So of course I begin to ask the questions and I hear the same story, but it's always just different names. And most of the time, God wasn't God in the family. Hockey, soccer, other sports, other things were God, and church wasn't. It it wasn't important or it wasn't good enough. And so basically for a number of influential years, critical years, a family taught their child that the church community is secondary to whatever athletic gift or whatever gift or whatever schooling is ultimate. And eventually the competition gets greater and greater and the kids have no background, no understanding, no passion, no knowledge, no zeal, no instruction, no example, no nothing. And they walk away from the church and mom and dad are panicking in spite of the fact that they just spent years training their child that they just didn't need God. Think about what I've just laid out to you. Here's the truth about Christianity that people probably keep too quiet. 
when we surrender our life to Christ, he begins to really go after our hearts, right? And that makes some things difficult. And it's almost like we get duped into Christianity, if I could put it that way. We, you know, do you want joy? You know, and do, you, do you want happiness? Well, yes, who doesn't want joy and happiness? Well, commit your life to Christ. And then it's not too long after we do that commitment, God says, well, this area, your heart, Jerry, I want it. It's like maybe you got this thing that you've done or this thing that you're doing or this thing that you can't shake. And God is saying, I want it. Let's bow our heads. What's God requiring from you today? And who are you in the picture? I want to pray for you and uh, if you're up to it I just want to invite you if you don't have to do this if you are a guest today and you think it's weird that's fine we're weird deal with it but as an act of surrender and submission just opening up your hands and palms upward symbolizing the fact that you are empty and carrying nothing and that you're just inviting the Holy Spirit just to come upon you as I pray over you and for you Father, my prayer is that you would stir up our hearts towards you. That you would reveal to us where you have made good, where we have made good things the ultimate things. And by doing so, create an offense to you. I pray that you would create in me a deeper longing to know you and to worship you and to exalt you and to love you and to honor you, God, I just pray as my hands are extended that you would reveal yourself to me in a way that I have never encountered you before. Because God, I just ask that you would help us. It's a difficult thing, this world we live in. It's easy to get confused. It's easy just not to think about where our love is terminating, what we've exalted. We just get caught up in our own world so... Help us slow down and help us put you first. I recognize it's a confusing time to raise boys and girls in a culture that's driven by activity and sport and success as the world defines it, but may you equip and empower our parents to anchor their, their kids in the foundation of you. It's easy to get caught up in having great athletes who are great students who know nothing of what is eternal and what really matter. So help us, is my prayer this morning. Help us as we introspect and retool. Help us, God, because we need you. And as I said at the beginning, give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Next week, golf and church. In ancient time, the one who blessed extend his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. If you have time and help us stack chairs at the end of the gathering, we invite you to do so. But may the light of God surround you, soul sanctuary. May the love of God enfold you. 
know that the power of God protects you and the presence of God watches over you. Wherever you are, remember, God is. Amen. Be blessed and now go and live the church. See you next week.